Welcome to Broadway World, Sound Like It Pop Podcast. I'm Matt Timonini, Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic, and as always, I'm joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief and resident white girl, Jennifer McHugh. Jen, how was brunch on what I assume is a beautiful mid-spring afternoon in Southern California? It's actually overcast today, oh. so you know, the freeways are shutting down and people are hiding inside their homes. But brunch itself was delicious, thank you for asking. With some other equally white girlfriends? 100%. It is yeah. our, our monthly meeting to solve all the world's problems while eating overpriced food. Nice. All right. Well, good for you. I'm glad somebody's solving problems because nobody in Washington, D.C. seems to be. Anyway, you can follow Jen on Twitter at Ebony Q. That's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q. And you can follow me on Twitter at B-W-W-M-A-T-T. And you can read both of us across various Broadway World sites. And you can now follow Something Like a Pop on Twitter at S-L-I-P Podcast. Not only can you get all episodes of Something Like a Pop on BroadwayWorld.com, but you can also get new episodes downloaded automatically via iTunes, Stitcher, and or Google Play. Also, if you don't hate us, rate and review the show so that we have something to brag about at family gatherings or brunch or whatever else we decide to do with other people, which isn't often. On this episode, we are going to talk about gods, both galactic, American, and with just a twinge of hyperbole theatrical, and per the usual, we will close the episode with a little show and tell. Jen, we both got to see a new movie this week, which is unusual. We don't both see movies as soon as they come out. So this is odd for us that we're seeing something that is actually in the movie theater's and actually, like, on schedule for pop culture awareness. And the funny thing about it is, is that the, that isn't the oddest part of the whole thing. We both loved it. <laughs> yes. Um, we are going to start the show off talking about the first big, quote-unquote, summer movie of the year, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And Jen, since literally every person in the world is going to see this movie in the next few weeks, we aren't going to worry too much about spoilers. Um, so for those folks who didn't head to the movie theater in the film's opening weekend. If you do not want to be spoiled, I will put the timestamp in the show notes for when we move on to the next topic, but we are going to get deep into the plot of the film. But before you go, as Jen just said, I feel comfortable speaking for both of us on this. We both loved it, both thought it was funny, smart, clever, but also touching and sentimental. And even in doing some things that no other space or superhero movie normally does, it felt familiar and honest and, and true to itself. Jen, do you have anything else you want to add before we get into the spoilery section of this conversation? Um, I guess I just wasn't expecting the gamut of emotions. Like the first one did so well with the mixing the laughter and the emotion. I think this upped their game where I laughed harder and I, I choked up way more. And there may have even been a, been a tear or two shed. Wow. That's a big admission from you. Well, I have more of a soul than you do, so it's not as big of an admission as if you said it. Eh, well, you know, I think I cry more, though, but it's as we talked about in our last list of Palooza, I think my tears are different than yours. But anyway, we are going to now get into some spoiler stuff, so if you haven't seen it, skip ahead to our next section, um, which won't have any spoilers because we have absolutely no idea what the hell's going on and what we're going to talk about next. Okay, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, as you probably know, is the follow-up to the somewhat surprise 2014 blockbuster that starred Chris Pratt as Star-Lord, a.k.a. Peter Quill, Zoe Saldana as Gamora, Dave Bautista as Drax the Destroyer, and the voice work of Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel as Rocket and Groot, respectively. This film, the second one, was written and directed by James Gunn, who also directed and co-wrote the original, along with Nicole Perlman, who did not co-write this one, because she is currently working on the Captain Marvel movie which will star Brie Larson and come out in 2019. Anyway, 
having loved the first movie in early 2015 when I was a guest on another now defunct podcast, I said that I thought the first Guardians should have claimed the 10th spot in that year's Academy Awards. So, Jen, I don't say this lightly, but I think, I'm not sure, but I think I agree with you that the sequel was actually better than the first one. I don't think that happens very often when I think that, or let alone um, anybody thinks that. But I personally think I liked Volume 2 better. I do too. And I was speaking with my roommate about it. And the only thing we could come up with was, is that obviously the first movie in any franchise is always like, here are the characters, here are how they're not going to get along, but somehow find a way to work together. And that's really fun to watch and um, like get to know everybody. But sometimes when the sequel comes around and they have an actual story, the characters are too one dimensional, too like one dimensional and not very interesting enough to carry it through. And the story has to be amazing in order for it to succeed. And that doesn't always happen. But these characters have so many layers that by the time you got into an actual story and watch them work together and watch them work as a family and see their problems and the issues they have with each other, like everything just worked. And the story itself was interesting. The struggles each individual person was going through were interesting. And the way they took that out on each other or helped each other through that. Some of the um, peripheral characters from the first movie came into the more of a forefront in this movie. And I thought they were great. And um, Baby Groot is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about Baby Groot here in a second. But one of the things that I think you mentioned, and you just kind of snuck it in there, you said the word family. And that is very much the theme throughout pretty much all of the relationships that we see focused on in this film. The main thrust of, of Guardians 2 is that after decades of searching, Peter Quill's father, who is not of this world, finally finds him and tries to build a relationship with him. The problem is that his father, played by Kurt Russell, is not only a god, but he's also a planet, and his name is Ego. No foreshadowing there. And as we watch the movie unfold, we learn that he is set on intergalactic domination, for which he needs the godlike powers of his son. I will say, Jen, I loved this movie, liked it better than the first, but this is technically the A story of the film. But to me, it felt secondary at best in terms of what I was interested in. Before we get into the other ones, what did you think of the Star-Lord and Ego aspect of Guardians 2? I agree with you. The Star-Lord-Ego storyline was interesting, but not compared to the other storylines. I was way more invested in the Star-Lord, uh, what's his character's name, Von, Von 2? Von? Mm -hmm. Yondu. I was way more interested in that dynamic and Gamora and Nebula and Rocket and like all of the other storylines were way even the Drax and Mantis. Um, well, and that but that's also not saying that what Pratt and Russell was doing was bad. It just wasn't the the, the story itself wasn't as interesting. If they were they were both great, but it just wasn't. Eh, okay. I think it speaks to the writing that that story was good, but it. It was only one of many good stories, and the other ones just happened to be more interesting. Like, if the, if the movie was just about Star-Lord and Ego, I don't think it would have succeeded on as many levels as it did. Um, that's just my opinion. But Chris Pratt, his reaction with – or his interaction with Yondu, his strained relationship with Rocket, his sexual tension with Gamora. Like, he was very vital, but he was kind of like the, the pinnacle of which all these storylines were breaking off from, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. I, I think they did a really good job of setting up the relationship between Peter Quill and his father in the first movie so that it did feel earned 
when we met Ego and saw the relationship that Peter Quill wanted to have with him, and it made complete sense why that was there. And then, as you got going, I, I maybe maybe the issue for me was that that relationship felt very familiar in terms of what we see in a lot of adventure movies, where you have expectations, you you feel like you're getting your expectations met, you're really excited, everything's going perfectly, and then, whoops, someone pulls the rug out from underneath you and the person you expected to be this perfect, great individual you want, had longed for a reunion with isn't the great person that you thought they were. It felt very familiar. There was a lot of things that felt familiar in this, but this was the only one that kind of was disappointingly familiar. And I, I say disappointingly hesitantly because it was still good. It just... For the A plot of the movie, it wasn't great. I think you're right that these other ones, specifically, you know, Gamora and Nebula and Yondu and Quill and Yondu and Rocket. And let's talk about Drax and Mantis here in a minute. But I, I do feel like that the, the, I don't even want to say secondary because we liked them better. But the other relationships where people did kind of pair off a little bit and we delved deeper into their history and their evolving relationship was was better. But I don't hate the ego storyline because of it. No, not at all. It almost provided like a, a background setting for all the other things to unfold. Um, That's true. And we're not even mentioning like mentioning like the whole high priestess, you know, the new sets of antagonists and, and even like the um, Yandu's, um, what are they called? The, the, the Ravagers. The Ravagers. Ravagers. Um, you know, like there, there's even like, a third tier of things that were going on, you know, where we got introduced to Sylvester Stallone and a few other cameos that I, I genuinely don't want to spoil because they were my favorite parts of the movie. But, um, I just, I don't know. I, I I've actually talked to some people who hated it. <laughs> I hate them. I do too. I was like, are you joking? There's something for everyone, but I, I've only heard those reactions that hate or love. There's no like, no, it's okay. That's it. I haven't heard anyone who, who hated it. And I don't think I ever wanted cross paths with those people. But I really like the thing you said about it provided a setting for all of these things to happen. Because often Marvel movies are known for these big, huge um, set pieces, uh, not necessarily like physical set pieces, but in terms of the set pieces in the story that are big and major. And obviously setting something in space is much different than setting it in New York City or, or some Russian city that I can never remember, or the Sokovia or whatever it is. But the, the, it was really really beautiful on ego the planet and, and some of these other things so it did look really really great so if nothing else even if you don't love the ego storyline it did look really cool and i know this kind of goes without saying but the effects my god yeah. um just to look at where we are now as opposed to 10 years ago with special effects like ego being a actual planet and being able to you know personify himself in different ways the the transitional way they did that and him melting into dust and oh my god it was just really beautiful and not to mention <laughs> baby Groot you know um how they can have this little piece of animatronic whatever he is it, he's a piece of wood yeah. genuine like generate so much emotion like i i felt for this thing <laughs> like what the hell as dumb as he is. So dumb. And he's so cute. And he had me at the opening credits. Yeah, the opening credits are fantastic where everyone else on the Guardians are battling this huge, I don't know, space wormy type thing. And Baby Groot's just around there dancing. You know, he's just dancing to some old 70s, 80s tunes. I don't remember exactly what song Yellow. it was. Oh, was it Yellow? Okay. Mr. Blue um, Sky. 
Yeah, and so it, it was great. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of these other things, Jen, because in both Guardians films, and you mentioned it, there is an underlying romantic tension between Quill and Gamora. But I was very glad that director James Gunn did not really push that much at all. I mean, they talk about it, and it's there, and they kind of end the movie on on a somewhat romantic note, but it's really not a focus of the film. So many of Marvel's movies, and, and really action movies in general, get caught in this trap of relying on unnecessary romance as a way to shoehorn emotion in that they don't really do enough to earn. Like I'm specifically thinking about like Natalie Portman in Thor and Emily Van Camp and Captain America. I love both of those actresses, but they really didn't add anything other than giving the protagonist, Oh my God, this woman that I love, I have to be really, you know, invested in this, which just seems unnecessary. I really appreciated that. And we talked about this with Moana as well. You don't need to put a romance into a story that doesn't need romance. Uh, yeah, I'm always a fan of um, the happy ending equating the guy getting the girl or the girl getting the guy. It exists in the world, so it's fine. And I think sure. that James Gunn did it perfectly. Like, yeah, it's there, but it's so not the forefront. It's so not the story. It's just like they're very attracted to each other, and we're not going to ignore that, but we're also not going to focus on it. And I just thought that that was a perfect tone to set. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, uh, let's just do a real quick. I'll run through some of these other relationships. Give me a sentence or two about what you thought about Zoe Saldana as Gamora and her adoptive sister Nebula, played by Karen Gillan. Well, I think we had discussed offline that Karen Gillan is a giant because we both thought Zoe Saldana was a tall girl, and then they hugged in one scene, and <laughs> uh, she was towering over her. But their relationship is super interesting because. You know, in the whole first movie, Nebula is this villain. And then all of a sudden you start to see things from her perspective and you're like, oh, shit, she's just a victim, too. And so that provided an interesting dynamic as they don't really know how to relate to each other now that they're starting to understand each other a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the record, Zoe Saldana is 5'7". Karen Gillan is 5'11", but not the tallest woman in the main cast of this. And we'll mention that here in a second. Okay, what about Michael Rooker as Yondu? With either Peter Quill or Rocket Raccoon, whichever one. I know those were both very touching to you. Michael Rooker, to me, was the star of this. I think his whole arc was wonderful. And again, you know, it's that, that, that thing that James Gunn creates where it's this villain with no heart at all who actually turns out to be a really good dude. Um, he's not perfect. He's very flawed. He's made some obvious mistakes in his life, but... And, you know, and his core, he's a good dude and he tried to do the right thing. And his relating to Rocket, I thought was super touching. And the last scene was just heart wrenching for the last 15 minutes. I was just kind of a mess. But you <laughs> <laughs> No, they were great. I, I loved it. I thought they were both expertly done and they were both the relationships were both played upon in different ways because the Yondu and Quill relationship is much more well established in the first film and obviously put in. Um, opposition with Quill and Ego, but I thought the Yondu rocket thing, I didn't really expect, but it did really work. So I definitely agree. And last, you think uh, Michael Rooker, who is an alum of your beloved um, uh, Walking Dead, um, stole the movie. For me, Dave Bautista 
a former WWE heavyweight champion who I remember from that those days, to me, his Drax the Destroyer stole the movie. Because in this film, and I remember it from the first one, but not as much, Drax got a lot of funny lines here and got a lot of funny bits where he was just so easily amused by other people in ways that probably shouldn't have been amusing. But him, along with Mantis, who is played by Palm Clementief, their relationship was just fantastic and funny. There's some problematic things with Mantis that some other people I've read about and heard about that were a little uncomfortable with. Um, but I thought the relationship between those two were great. I thought Bautista was hysterical. Well, I think there's a difference between, um, for me, Michael Rooker was like the star, and but I fair, definitely fair. think Bautista stole it. And like you said, the way he plays everything so overly genuine – it is just so I don't the things that come out of his mouth, you're just like, Oh dear God and it's just um I thought he does a really good job. Like who knew he could act? The comic yeah. timing. Well, that's the thing, is like he was he was just a badass when he was a wrestler. Like he he wasn't I don't remember him ever being funny and he, he was really I don't I don't think I really watched wrestling a ton when he was really big, but I don't remember him being funny. But the the delivery of one of the lines at the end, you're beautiful on the inside. Like I just, I laughed so hard at that. So I love that. Um, there are some great other people in this, including James Gunn's brother, Sean, you know, Kirk from, from Gilmore girls. He's back as Craglin, uh, who was Yondu's second in command. You mentioned Sylvester Stallone, who plays Stockhar Ogord, who is one of the leaders of the Ravagers. Um, apparently he is planned to be back in volume three of guardians. So we'll see about that. Um, Chris Sullivan from This Is Us plays Taserface, which gets a lot of jokes out of that. So that was great. And the answer to the trivia question um, that I mentioned about the tallest woman in the movie, I didn't realize this until I was looking at some other things, Jen, but the golden high priestess Aisha, the leader of the Sovereign People, is played by an actress named Elizabeth Debicki, and she is 6'3". Uh, in fact, James Gunn put her in platform shoes to make her 6'7". So she tall. Yeah, I liked their um, whole dynamic. There was a, a lot of things that got brought up with that race that I think were very subtle and um, kind of an interesting comment on social issues without like being in your face over the top about it. It was just kind of a, a, a quiet commentary. I mean, there's everything from something as something is kind of controversial as genetic modifications to a reliance on technology. I mean, I think you're right. They are very subtle, but they're definitely there. So. Again, I don't know that we can say it anymore. We both loved it. Jen heard some people that didn't love it. Uh, it's gotten really good reviews. I would say, Jen, though, in the review that I wrote for Broadway World on the film, I said that the first one really kind of opened the doors for funny superhero movies. This was before Ant-Man. This was before Deadpool. I don't know that Guardians 2 is going to have that kind of impact. But again, both of us think it was a better film. So uh, it's going to make a crap ton of money. And I'm really glad because I, I love everybody in this film and I can't wait to see what happens with volume three. I was really surprised, actually. Like when I saw it, I was like, oh, I love that movie. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get into a fight with Matt about it tomorrow. <laughs> so I was really surprised that we were both on the same page. I tried to make you think that ahead because I saw it a couple days before you did. And I tried to like tease that I didn't like it very subtly. I was like, well, I'm interested to see if you think that it lives up to the first one. And then when you said, sent me a message on chat and said, oh, I really loved it. I said, you did? So I tried to make you think I didn't, but it's so good. You can't not love this movie. And if you don't like it, I hate you. 
So we're saving the galaxy again? Yep. Awesome! We're really going to be able to jack up our prices for two-time galaxy savers. Yeah! All you do is yell at each other. You are not friends. No, we're family. Except maybe her. All right, now, Jen, the next thing that we're going to talk about is the new Stars drama, American Gods. It is based on the Neil Gaiman fantasy novel of the same name. I talked about it a little bit in our April preview episode where I watched the pilot, loved it. It was beautiful. It is developed and directed and showrun by Brian Fuller from previous shows like Pushing Daisies and Hannibal. If you know those shows, you know that he has a very signature visual style. So it's not a surprise that his show about American gods is gorgeous. At the time, I said I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I understood the basic premise because I I own the book. I haven't read it. And I understood kind of the setup. But you don't really get that in the first episode. And I've watched the second episode, which is aired by the time this episode comes out. Jen has it, so I won't spoil it, but... You don't really figure out what's going on in the second episode either. So, Jen, let's talk about this a little bit. I'm on board. It looks great. The acting is fantastic. The characters are super compelling. But I feel like they're drawing this out. It is such a slow burn from the first episode to the second episode. It feels like they're setting you up for a 22-episode season. Well, there's really only eight episodes in the first season, so I'm a little nervous about how slow and drawn out the first two episodes are. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. And like you said, I only saw the first episode, but it is so beautiful. I'm not going to tell you to watch it high, but a little bird told me that it was better high. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was really, really beautiful. But also, like you said, I am compelled by the acting and the cast. I have no idea what's going on. I love that the guy's name is Shadow Moon. I don't, that's just great. We we have a thing for... TV shows that have really oddly named characters. You really do. Like, I just really appreciate a good character name. And when he said, my name is Shadow Moon, and even the, I think it was uh, Ian McShane was like, that's your name? Like, that's awesome. And it was just <laughs> well, so. And his name is Mr. Wednesday. So. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so on that level I'm in, um, I usually give everything a minimum of three episodes to just see, like, do I want to see this through? I know Neil Gaiman is an acquired taste because he <laughs> isn't in a hurry to tell you what's going on. It's just, it'll come out when it comes out. So I, I am interested in it. I, I just don't know how long my attention span is. I was really happy to see Pablo Schreiber though, because I'm a big fan of um, the wire. Yeah. I mean, it's got a great cast. Um, I was unfamiliar with Ricky Whittle who plays shadow moon, but you also see, uh, in the first episode, you see Pablo Schreiber. As you mentioned, you see Ian McShane. In future episodes, you also see Emily Browning in there. In future episodes, you see Crispin Glover. You see Cloris Leachman in the second episode. You see Jillian Anderson in the second episode. You see Orlando Jones in the second episode. Coming up in future episodes, you've got Dane Cook, Kristen Chenoweth, Corbin Burnson. It's It's got a great cast. Uh, and as you start to see a little bit more as to what's going on, and you do learn more in the second episode, but not... Really, you kind of under, start to understand the world, but you don't really understand the plot yet. But there's um, uh, Peter Stormar. Jen, do you know who he is? I do not know. He he played, um, and I forget how to say his name, he played Georg Grumsrud in Fargo. 
Oh, the um, the blonde guy. Yes, he is. Yeah, in, yeah. It, he is featured heavily in the second episode. In like the second episode is just. I'm not going to spoil it because you haven't seen it, but it, like I said, it's still slow. But him and Ricky Whittle play Shadow Moon. They have this scene where they go back and forth where almost nothing is said, but the acting is so interesting that I was like, okay, I guess I'm watching them do this super boring thing. Um, it was compelling. So the the scope of the story that Neil Gaiman um, and Brian Fuller are telling is great. The The technical wizardry with which it is done is great. The acting is great. I just wish they'd hurry the hell up and t- start telling the story. Yeah, I think we are a little spoiled. Um, and I was just, and I'll talk about it at a later date, but I just started watching this show called The Expanse. And um, like something crazy happens in every episode. And and I, I know that I've complained about it before, but I think we're in that culture now where people expect that every episode. But I want to be patient with this because I do like unfolding things slowly and I do like seeing where characters are coming from. And I have to get back to that instead of falling victim to this new trend of, oh, my God, every episode. I trust Neil Gaiman. So I really want to get a chance. It's like kind of the scandal effect. Like I really feel like Scandal was the first show that really forced everybody to get into the habit of expecting a complete swerve in every episode. But, Jen, you and I both loved Rectify, where it could be argued that absolutely nothing happened in the entire three-year run of that show. And it's interesting to me that as I'm watching something that is paced almost even more deliberately than Rectify, that I'm like, okay, come on, come on. And I don't know what the difference is between the two episodes that I've seen so far of American Gods and the three seasons of Rectify, but it was pretty obvious early on that that rectify was going to be paced slowly but i but i stayed in as did you obviously so i i I know i kind of just sprung this question on you but can you pinpoint something maybe different in the storytelling that makes you a little more patient with something like rectify than american gods is it just that that story was a little more real it didn't involve all of the blood raining down and magic and gods and stuff maybe i mean maybe I think I got into Rectify because it had that true crime aspect, and we all know what an addict mm. I am on that. Yeah. But also, we had spoken about how Rectify, it was more about the things that weren't being said than were. And in American Gods, they're not only visually beautiful, that not only is the acting beautiful, but it's also very dialogue-y. And so it's kind of merging those two things. And also, even as I'm saying, oh, I'm getting used to all these you know, action-packed episodes of Expanse, you know, one of my biggest complaints on Scandal is that there were so many shocking things happen that after a while you're like, okay, can we just like take a breath? Like th- this isn't life, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it gets old after a while. You want the characters to be developed and you want a more subtle, you know, mundane plot. So I think we just need to be a little bit patient and give it some leeway and trust that Neil Gaiman knows what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and this story is based on a book and there's some funky stuff going on. So if you've read the book, you do have a heads up because apparently it is following pretty closely because there's one scene in that first episode, Jen, and I don't want to spoil it because oh this my is God. you know which one I'm talking about. Where you're just like, oh, wait, I do. What? wait, what just <laughs> happened? Did that just happen? It happens. It, it happens like five or six more times in the second episode. 
Um, and I don't feel like that's a spoiler because once you see the setting, you know it's going to happen. I'm just, just like, whoa, wait, what? And then I saw a couple people who'd read the book being like, I was just watching on Twitter for when that happened because I was anticipating what everyone would be saying. They don't not go there on this show. If there's something that is weird in the book, oh, they are going there completely weird. And again, it brings me back to the fact that I loved Hannibal, but it makes me wonder what Brian Fuller would have done with Hannibal if it had been on Stars as opposed to NBC. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it, it's one of those things where you're watching, you're like, what's happening? Is that what's happening? Wait, <laughs> is, that what, is that what I think is happening? Like, it's just, I, I could imagine the glee, someone who knew it was coming, like oh. even just to see what the hashtag would be. <laughs> For that to trend. <laughs> oh, I don't even want to. I don't even want to think about what the hashtags were. Yeah, I can't. Okay. I can't. I was thinking to myself while watching it, like, what if I had read this book in school and had to do a book report? <laughs> like, how oh, would no. I describe that scene in seventh grade? A anyway. a. Uh, I don't know. I I don't even know. A cannibalistic beaver. Anyway, we're gonna move on to the next topic. But if you are watching American Gods. Let us know on Twitter at SLIP Podcast. Let us know what, how you would have hashtagged that one scene. And if you've seen the pilot of American Gods, you know what scene we're talking about. I've learned to slam on the brake Before I even turn the key Before I make the mistake before I lead with the worst of me Give them no reason to stare No slipping up if you slip away So I got nothing to share Okay, Jen, we are recording on Saturday, May 6th, and earlier this week, the American Theatre Wing announced the 2017 Tony nominations, your boy, C-Jack, Christopher Jackson, the Tony nominee for Hamilton last year, along with Tony winner Jane Krakowski, announced the nominations, and even though neither of us have seen a single show of this theatrical season, we wanted to discuss them from two specific perspectives. One, as two theater lovers who live in much nicer, warmer climates, thousands of miles away from Broadway, and from the pop culture perspective, because even though this is not one that is dominated by movie stars um, and stuff getting a bunch of nominations, it's not really dominated by movie-to-stage adaptations. There are a lot of correlations and a lot of crossovers from the Broadway world to the pop culture world. So I'm just going to run through some of the nominations here real quick. James Marino, my Today on Broadway partner, and I did an episode just minutes after the Tony nominations were announced. I'll link to that in the show notes and in the article on Broadway World if you want to listen to our episode there if you want more of the theatrical perspective. But the best play nominees are A Doll's House Part 2, Indecent, Oslo, Sweat, Best Musicals, Come From Away, Dear Evan Hansen, Groundhog Day, Natasha Pierre, and The Great Comet of 1812. Best Revival, August Wilson's Jitney, John Guare's Six Degrees of Separation, Lillian Hellman's Little Foxes, and Present Laughter. Best Revival of a Musical, Falsettos, Hello Dolly, Miss Saigon. Jen, I have a feeling we're going to talk about some of the nominations, but I wanted to give everyone kind of a lay of the land as to what the shows were. We can talk about some of the actors and actresses that are nominated and starring in these shows. But you actually suggested that we talk about this. Um, so I'm going to leave the floor with you. What was the first thing as you are um, reading these nominations? Because I'm assuming you didn't get up at 530 in the morning West Coast time to watch them live. What jumped out at you? What was compelling to you about the 2017 Tony nominations? 
Well, I was I was waiting for two things. One, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, because I'm in love with the cast recording. And two, Hello, Dolly, because it's one of my favorite musicals ever. And I really, really want Bette Midler to get a Tony. And both were nominated. I I feel horrible saying this, but I was really glad that Amelie got snubbed because I thought it was terrible. And when it went to Broadway, I was like, really? So that didn't get you in. You saw it in one of the California. It had two California out of town tryouts. One with Samantha Barks as uh, as Amelie. The second one with Philippa Sue, fr- who actually originated the role in the workshops, did Hamilton and then came back to it. You saw Philippa or Samantha? I saw Philippa. That was the only reason I went was to see her. Okay, and you obviously hated it. I did. I love the movie so much, and um, I thought you know I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea, and I love her obviously. And I just thought it was a terrible transition to the stage. The music was, it sounded like one long song. There was no distinguishable melody between one song and another. And the things that made the the movie really like sweet and dreamlike and um, adorable were just cheesy on stage. And it made it really like cheap. And so I just hated it. And I, when it went to Broadway, I was confused. But, you know, that's what star power will do for you. And, well, um, apparently, though, it didn't really do a whole lot because it has already announced closing. It will close on May 21st, having not received a single Tony nomination. Yeah, I mean, there's always casualties like the week of the Tony nominations, but I'm not I, I never root for anyone to fail because, you know, there's, oh, just too many, there's jobs and, you know, there's theater people and, you know, you want. But all of those people are capable of something better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you never root for any show not to succeed. Uh, I always root for everything to do well, because if. If, if a show does well, that means Broadway is doing well. On to some of the other things that you mentioned. Dear Evan Hansen, the musical that features a score by recent Oscar nominees, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. Oscar winners. What did I say? Nominees? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, Oscar winners. I apologize. That's what I meant. That is pretty much the favorite to win a Best Musical. It was not the most nominated show, which generally is what ends up winning. It didn't get a lot of the technical nominations because it is a much simpler show, a small cast, a nice set apparently, but nothing super fantastic. That is one of the front runners. Hello Dolly, along with Bette Midler, are seem to be runaway easy wins. If you were betting on the Tony Awards, those would be the ones that you'd want to put a lot of money on because nobody is expecting anybody other than Bette and Hello Dolly to win. Well, I really like the cast recording of Dear Evan Hansen. I love Ben Splatt, obviously from Pitch Perfect. Um, <laughs> just to just to be just to be clear, his Twitter handle is Ben Splatt. His name is Ben Platt. I call him Ben Splatt because that's how I. Yeah, that's his Twitter him. handle. That's fine. Totally understand. <laughs> well, isn't his name Ben S. Platt? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, anyway, he is adorable. I listen to that soundtrack a lot. I love Pascal and Paul. Um, but I've been hearing good things about the kid that is up for a featured role in the musical. I think he's a newbie. His name's Mike Faced. And yeah. I don't know if you know the story, but um, it's about this uh, guy who kills himself. And Spoiler he plays – Mike Faced plays that character who you know is recurring throughout the show even though he's dead. And um, I, I just hear really good things about him. Everything I've read about him is really cute. So I, I love stories like that. He's he's in some, you know, up against some heavy competition with Gavin Creel and Andrew Reynolds. And but I, I love watching like new people get nominated for the first time and they're sitting at the Tony's like, what has <laughs> happened to my life? <laughs> like, because, you know, I, like six months ago to a year ago, they were like, someday, man, I'll be up there. And then they're sitting in the audience nominated for a Tony. 
Yeah, well, Mike Faced was one of the surprises. There, I mean, generally, you can kind of gauge as to what the nominations will be, but Mike Faced was definitely, in terms of the performers, probably the biggest surprise. I don't think he'd been really nominated for any of the other awards, mainly because... In fact, he hadn't been nominated for any other uh, awards this season because Jared Hansen had played off-Broadway. So other than the Tonys, it had been eligible for every other New York award, and he really wasn't nominated then either. So it was a surprise that he was nominated, but a lot of people are super happy about him getting a nomination. I don't think he really has much of an opportunity to win in that category because he's up against some pretty big heavy hitters. But I think it was a nice story. A young kid getting nominated out of nowhere. I think people are really happy about that. Let's run through some of these categories that do have a little bit more pop culture cachet. The Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role in a Musical. The nominees are Christian Borle for Falsettos. The show that he is currently in, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, got nary a nomination because it is apparently even more god-awful than Amelie. But the name is giving it a little bit more of a box office bank. He's nominated against Josh Groban for Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812. Andy Carl, who's having a little bit of a moment thanks to a torn ACL for Groundhog Day the Musical. David Hyde Pierce, interesting story about that we can talk about, uh, for Hello, Dolly. And, of course, the aforementioned Ben Platt for Dear Evan Hansen. Jen, um, David Hyde Pierce plays Horace Vandergelder in in Hello, Dolly. It's a, it's a part that could probably be argued as a featured role. Obviously, he is a big name, so he actually refused to be nominated in the feature category, not because he's got a super big ego, but because he wanted to ensure that his co-star, Gavin Creel, who you mentioned, had less competition in that featured role category. And it, Obviously, it's tough to nominate two people from the same show in the same category, although it did happen in that featured category, but he wanted to give Gavin a little bit more uh, of an opportunity to take himself out of that running, um, even though he knows that he's pretty much got no shot to win against either Andy Carl or Ben Platt. So good for David Hyde Pierce for sharing that wealth. Andy Carl, who just, on a Friday night, before the Monday opening of Groundhog Day, he was doing a, a leapfrog over a fellow cast member in a song, and he comes down awkwardly, gets a complete tear of his left anterior cruciate ligament. He tears his ACL. Three days later, after some really quick physical therapy, some encouragement from his wife, Orfe, he performs the role gets great reviews, gets a Tony nomination. He took four shows off the first week, took two shows off the second week after that, and in the third week is back to a full schedule. He's getting a lot of publicity for this, and well-deserved. He's one of those guys. He's had three Tony nominations in four years, hasn't won, but is definitely a Broadway guy. Josh Groban, making his Broadway debut in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, has really endeared himself to the Broadway community, really taking it seriously and embracing everybody. Uh, and Christian Borle and his arms are nominated, it seems, every year. He's already got two Tonys. So, Jen, there's some really interesting stories in there. You've already mentioned your love for Ben Platt. But what else about that category, as someone who lives in Los Angeles, interests you? Well, I think you're right about um, Groban really endearing himself to the community. Like, everybody who goes just adores him, and he's so nice to everybody, and I remember when he first came on the scene, he was just like this scrawny kid with a beautiful voice. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, he has like this raunchy sense of humor. And I think for me, it first popped out on Jimmy Kimmel when he appeared in this uh, video. I'm well, I'll censor it. I'm effing Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yeah. And then Jimmy Kimmel responded with I'm effing Ben Affleck and Josh Groban did this ballad portion of it. I'm like, does he have a <laughs> sense of humor? And then he, I started following him on Twitter, and he's just hilarious. Like, he has such a great sense of humor about himself. 
Um, I don't think I would be upset if that happened. It would, I think, I, I can't speak to his performance. Um, a few of my friends went and saw it and they loved it. But um, I think that would be star power right there, getting it over the, the people you mentioned. Christian Borle, like he won last year. And I mean, they should just give them him the Tony for his arms. But <laughs> I, I really think it's it's Andy Carl or Ben Platt. Um, yeah. That's the common common assumption there. Um, moving on to the best performance by an actress in a leading role in a musical. We won't touch on this too much because, as we said, Bette Midler is the far and away favorite in this category. But she's also nominated against Josh Groban's co-star, Danae Benton, um, in a role that, ironically enough, was originated by Philippa Sue off-Broadway. She left to do Hamilton. They replaced her for an out-of-town tryout in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Rather than coming back to Great Comet for its Broadway run, she decided to do Amelie. Oops, made a mistake. So Danae Benton's nominated for Great Comet. The musical War Paint has two nominees in this category, Christine Ebersol and Patti Lapone, both of whom have both won two Tonys, Bette Midler for Hello, Dolly, and then Eva Noble Zeta, who's like 21 or 22 years old for the lead role in Miss Saigon. She got the role at the age of 17 after Tara Rubin, who's a famed casting director in New York, saw her at the National High School Musical Theater Awards, the Jimmy Awards, named for James Niederlander Sr. She got the part from that to do it in London. They did it there in London. It transferred to Broadway. In between, they filmed it. Um, so I did see the filmed version from the West End, and I thought she was devastatingly incredible. She's also incredibly gorgeous. So that helps. But so this is the one performance for the most part that I've seen. She's not really gonna knock Ben Midler off her off her post, but it's a really cool kind of like Mike faced for her and Danae Benton, who are both pretty young and new to the game, to get these nominations in their Broadway debuts. And I just gotta say, it's so nice to see Bet and Patty Lupone and Christine Ebersol in there, like for all of the sickening inequality in the world nobody like Broadway reveres its leading ladies. Like for these and, women, and to be leading there, ladies of a certain age, you know, Hollywood like doesn't give a lot of parts to. Yeah. Especially of those of advanced years. Like they worship Cheetah Rivera and they worship Angela Lansbury. And these three are nominated for best actress in a musical and they're approaching 70, if not in their seventies. Like yeah. that just makes me really happy. Yeah, bet 71. So um, definitely a uh, a difference between this and Hollywood, unless you're Meryl Streep. Unless you're Meryl, if you're Meryl Streep, you get nominated. If you're not, you better not be over 40. Um, running through some of the acting in play categories, Dennis Arnett is nominated for the two-hander Heisenberg. Academy Award winner Chris Cooper is nominated for A Doll's House Part 2. Corey Hawkins, who started straight out of Compton and 24 Legacy on TV, is nominated for Six Degrees of Separation. Two-time, two-time Tony winner Kevin Klein is nominated for Present Laughter. And previous Tony winner Jefferson Mays is nominated for Oslo. Best performance by an actress in a leading role, Kate Blanchett, movie star in her own right, nominated for The Present. Tony winner Jennifer Ely is nominated for Oslo. Someone named Sally Field is nominated for The Glass Menagerie. And then Laura Linney is nominated for The Little Foxes. And Laurie Metcalf is nominated for A Doll's House Part 2. Jen, it's interesting that this year, the big Hollywood names, there's a few, but not many, there's a few big Hollywood names in the musical categories, but it seems like the the, the big A-list West Coasters are in the play category. Here's the thing. Laurie Metcalf is one of the greatest actresses I have ever seen on stage and I cannot believe she has never won an award. 
um, on stage. I think she has an Emmy for Roseanne because I remember. An, oh, she's an, got uh, multiple Emmys for Roseanne, I believe. I remember her at the end of one Roseanne episode, like polishing the Emmy and Roseanne started chasing her around the set. Very funny. Anyway, I saw her on stage in L.A. and in All My Sons, and it was seriously the greatest performance I've ever seen on stage. Um, she is so unbelievable. I don't know a lot about this show. But and that's a freaking tough category. Jesus, that's like royalty. But she's my she has my vote. She and she is kind of the front runner. It's I mean, it's a great category. Sally Field is kind of in there on the name of herself. The the show didn't get a single other nomination, uh, but she's in there. Kate Blanchett. Not really a contender in this category. Jennifer Ely, even though the show is a front runner for best play, probably not a contender. So it's probably going to come down to Laura Linney or Laurie Metcalf. And um, I would I would imagine at this point it would be Laurie Metcalf in the pl- actor in a play category. I, man, I don't know. I, it, it, that one's really up for grabs. I would imagine it's going to be Chris Cooper or Kevin Klein, but not super sure on any of those. Running through some of the featured categories, just we won't talk too much about them. But best performance by an actor in a featured role in a play is Michael Aronoff for Oslo. Danny frickin' DeVito is getting his a Tony nomination in his Broadway debut for Arthur Miller's The Price. Nathan Lane is nominated for The Front Page. Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas. John Boy himself, star of The Americans, is nominated for Little Foxes. And John Douglas Thompson is nominated for Jitney. Best performance by an actress in a featured role in a play, Joanna Day for Sweat. Jane Howdyshell, who won the in this category last year for A Doll's House Part 2. Cynthia Nixon for Little Foxes. Condola Rashad for A Doll's House Part 2. And Michelle Wilson for Sweat. Jen, I, other than Danny DeVito and Richard Thomas, I don't know if there's a ton to talk about here, but I just love the fact that Richard Thomas is nominated for a Tony. Me too. I um, I of course John Boy, yeah, sure. But I remember him from um, <laughs> a TV movie from the '80s that made me cry real hard, called Go Toward the Light. Anyway, we'll move past it. Yeah, I'm really happy for him. Didn't Gene Howdy Show win last year? Yeah, I just said that. Uh, sometimes I don't listen to Matt when he's talking. Most of I the just time. unmute and go on the internet. Um. Yeah, it's all I, – I really I don't know anything about these shows. That's all right. Featured actor in a musical, Gavin Creel, who you mentioned, Michael Face, who you mentioned, Andrew Reynolds, Lucas Steele, and Brandon Uranowitz. All great. Don't know. Um, best performance by an actress in a featured role in a musical, Kate Baldwin for Hello, Dolly. Stephanie J. Block for Falsettos. Jen Colella for Come From Away. Rachel Bay Jones for Dear Evan Hansen. And Mary Beth Peel, Graham from Dawson's Creek. Nominated for Anastasia. Love that. Yeah, that's always um, fun. Saw Kate Baldwin on stage. What did I see her in? I want to say Finian's Rainbow. Finian's Rainbow. Yep. With Cheyenne Jackson. What's his face? Cheyenne Jackson, yes. Yeah, I, I think Stephanie J. Block is probably the the favorite in this, but I would not be surprised if if Kate Baldwin, maybe Jen Colella. Jen Colella for Come From Away might be the favorite. I don't know. This is a tough category, but... Um, Mary Beth Peel, like one of the grand doms of stage and screen acting. I'm super glad for her to get uh, a Tony nomination. I believe she has a Tony award already from something years ago, um, but uh, at least has a Tony. I know she was nominated. She's one of the few Annas in The King and I that did not win a Tony. But anyway, I could be completely making all that up, but I'm pretty sure. But anyway, it's an Let's inter- hear it for uh, Broadway revering the, the elderly lady. She's 76 okay. years old. Up for a Tony. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, she's fantastic. So there is a ton of stuff in here, uh, Jen, that even if you're not someone who gets to see all the shows, um, you and I haven't seen any of them, there's a ton of just great storylines. And that's what's so interesting to me about Broadway. 
you and I can watch every TV show. We can see every movie the exact same. It's the same exact thing. We live on the opposite sides of the country. Neither of us are go, go to New York super often, so we really can't see these. But I am still feel like, granted, I work in theater every day. I talk about theater on a podcast every day. But I feel just as emotionally invested in these shows, in these performances, not necessarily in the awards, because awards are awards. They don't really mean anything. But in the fact that these people are getting recognition, I'm, I'm invested in that. And I know I don't feel the same way about movies and TV shows I don't see. So I don't know what that is, what it is about the theater. But even though I can't get to New York and see everything like I would like, it still matters to me. Same. Because I can't get to New York and see everything, the Tonys is a really big night for me because you get that moment where you can see a performance Mm, and be like, okay, I need to make a point to see that. Either get to New York and see it or when it comes on tour out here, like Mm -hmm. that's just our – it's kind of like a giant preview of, of things that we want to see. And and there have been things on the Tony Awards where I've seen performances and I'm like, all right, maybe I don't need to see that. You know, like I can wait a few years, but um, I'm very excited to see Hello, Dolly. I have loved that musical since I was a little girl and I used to walk down the stairs and do the whole number. And that's just a <laughs> oh, part of me man. I need to know about. And Bette Midler is one of my favorite people in the entire world. So I, I, and praying that they literally do that number. I don't know if they will, but if they do the song Hello Dolly, I will weep like a little girl. Very nice. And I'll tell you, the Scott Rudin, who's the producer of Hello Dolly, they have not released a ton of footage. They actually haven't released any footage. They've only released a handful of images, but they did allow cameras for the opening night curtain call. And I got to tell you, Bette Midler for 71 looks fantastic. She looks great. So um, congratulations to everybody in all of these categories. Um, I am super excited. I'll be talking about them for the next five weeks over on Broadway Radio and writing about them on Broadway World. But can't wait for June 11th at 8 p.m. on CBS for the Tony Awards. Hello, Harry. Well, hello, Louis. It's so nice to be back home where I belong. All right, Jen, finally, we're going to close the show with a little show and tell where you and I auditorily show everybody something and then tell them why it is important. Um, I've been making you go first lately because I generally have to come up with something. Um, But I'm going to go first this time if that's okay with you. Yeah, it's fine with me. Okay. I'm going to veer off the um, entertainment type thing here, and I'm going to point you all to an article that I saw on SB Nation uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I occasionally write Ohio State articles for a website called Land Grant Holy Land. That is part of SB Nation, which is part of Vox. There's an SB Nation article that looks at a bowler named Ben Catola. He apparently, I'm not sure if he owns or works at a, a bowling alley, and he attempted to set a world record by throwing 12 strikes in a row in under one minute and four 51 seconds if you round up. He lives in Syracuse, New York. They filmed it completely so you can see it all. And he threw a perfect game in one minute and 27 seconds. 
I consider myself to be at least I don't I, I don't really bowl anymore. But when I had a social life, I was a decent bowler. I you know I could occasionally hit the two hundreds. wasn't great. Never anywhere approached a perfect game. But to see this dude going two hand spinning and knocking out twelve strikes in a row, it's pretty amazing, Jen. I heard about that, but I haven't watched it. But I will definitely check it out. It's cool. I mean, it's a minute. It's a minute twenty seven seconds. You know, it's not a waste, but it it's pretty impressive. So if you go bowling and you like continually hit gutter balls, this definitely makes you uh, realize that there are people who are much better at things than you are. <laughs> yes, and I do exactly that, so I understand. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Jen, what do you have for show and tell? I am actually going to recommend a book. Wow. We're both shaking it up this week. <laughs> I have made no secret of the fact that my favorite rock star of all time is David Eric Grohl. And his mom released a book at the end of April, and it's called From the Cradle to the Stage. And she writes about what it's like to be the mother of a rock star. And in doing so, she decided to go around and interview a bunch of other mothers of famous musicians and what it's like, how early they realized that this was going to be a thing, um, how they supported them, how they didn't support them, how their lives changed once they got successful, where they are now. Um, it is fascinating. She talks to Dr. Dre's mom. She talks to Miranda Lambert's mom. She talks to, uh, Michael Stipes. Um, and it ends with her talking to the mother of Kurt Cobain and they knew each other, obviously back in the day, you know, they both went to the concerts and everything. And they talk and they sit down and talk after 20 years after the fact, um, about that time and and how everyone's coping with it now and then it ends the book with uh her and dave sitting down like interviewing each other um it's literally one of the best books i've read in years obviously i'm partial to dave Grohl because i think he's the greatest but it's also a really great testament as to what you can accomplish when you know you have supportive parents as opposed to when you don't and when you don't live in the best of circumstances like dr dre but you have a supportive parent you can really achieve everything and they talk about going to the shows and you know like they would go to shows and Dave Grohl's mom was always like where are the other moms like why don't they want to see this and it's just a really great read I was really really impressed and I can't recommend it highly enough that sounds awesome I mean how often do you see somebody being a part of two landmark bands a founding member of two hall of fame landmark bands and it does make you think how did he get there? How did Dave Grohl go from being the drummer of Nirvana to being the front man for the Foo Fighters? Um, and this is a great story to hear that his mom was instrumental in all of that. So good for them. It does. And even, you know, just a sneak preview of, um, you know, she saw she was a teacher and she could see the difference between people who were very good at academics and people who were very good at arts. And she saw right away that David was a music. He was into art and he was into music and it wasn't that he was a bad student. It just wasn't his thing. And he had an opportunity to go on tour um, when he graduated high school. And she said, yeah, you know, go do it because I wish I could go. And it <laughs> changed his life. Like, it's just amazing. So I highly recommend From Cradle to Stage. Awesome. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway World Sound Like a Pop Podcast. You can find all of our episodes on BroadwayWorld.com and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Sound Like a Pop. Also, do our egos a favor and follow the show on Twitter at SLIP Podcast and go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us, please. And thank you. We invite you to get in touch with Jen and me and let us know what you thought about the shows, movies, and topics that we discuss every week. We will be back in a week or two. I'm not sure how the schedule is going to line up, but shortly, and Jen and I are going to count down 
our top 10 movies that, even though they've been out for a while, still make us laugh uncontrollably. I think that's how we're describing it. Uh, That'll be our next list of Palooza. So until next time, we'll see you around the Broadway world. I mean, he still was involved with Van... What the hell's his name? Vondu. Vondu. No, no, no. Um, no, no, With the Y. Yondu. Yondu. Why can't I remember that? I need to write that down. On the high road. <laughs> yeah, I know. They go high, we go low. That's not how it goes. Mm-hmm.